the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Amin Tais. In a number of previous episodes, I briefly introduced the Quran, its contents, and its formation. Today, I will discuss the transition from the world of the Quran to the world of Islam. This might be confusing to some listeners. Isn't the Quran the scripture of the religion of Islam? Well, it is, but for the cultural historian, things are a little more complicated. In fact, much more complicated than that sentence suggests. Some of you might have noticed that often in this podcast, I use expressions like, it seems that, it appears that, it might have been that, uh, such and such, claim that, etc. I also often use adverbs like allegedly, seemingly, possibly, uh, likely, etc. Why is this? Well, there is an important reason, and I can sum it up in the term uncertainty. It is common that when people speak about religion or religious topics, they speak as if there is absolute agreement about what they claim, or as if what they claim is self-evident. For the historian, this attitude can be extremely misleading. What I seek to do here, in a very humble fashion, is to highlight to the listener that there is ambiguity, there is debate, there is disagreement everywhere around the study of religion and culture and the study of religious history and cultural history. Now, I'm not suggesting that anything goes. And I'm not suggesting that all views are equally valid. And I'm not suggesting that truth does not matter. Certainly, not all views were born equal. And truth is extremely important to pursue. But one has to be aware of the flaws of human understanding, of human reason, of our ability as historical beings to transcend our limitations. So, one has to be humble in their pursuit of knowledge, of historical truth, etc. What one must always remember is that what I present to you in this podcast when I discuss the history of Islam is not the past, but a construction of the past. A construction that is limited by my context, by the methods I use, by my intellectual ability, by my assumptions, by my psychology, etc. What you can expect of me as an expert on the subject is honesty, diligence, and good research. But what I present to you will still be limited by the things I mentioned earlier and by other elements. Elements that I might be aware of or might not be aware of. This is an open-ended process. Always seeking new information to provide a better picture. Similarly, 
the ideas and perspectives we come across as we study what we call Islam are also constructions based on the contexts in which they arose and developed. To go back to the topic of today's podcast, I will start from a very useful and important distinction that the late Professor Muhammad Arkun makes between what he called le fait coranique and le fait islamique. In English, this might be translated as the Quranic fact or Quranic phenomenon, if you want. This is on one hand. And the Islamic fact or Islamic phenomenon, on the other hand. I will stick to this paradigm, but I will instead use Quranic discourse on one hand and Islamic discourses in the plural on the other hand. We have seen in previous episodes that the Quranic discourse was originally an oral discourse and that it was then written in a codex and that finally an official version was imposed by the third caliph or ruler Uthman ibn Affan who died in the year 656. This version, this Uthmanic codex, is what Arkun calls the closed official corpus. So we see that already there is intervention by believers in the Quranic discourse, transforming it into a fixed text and imposing an official version through a political decision. Here, we are already starting to move from Quranic discourse to Islamic discourses. That is, from the prophets delivering a message to believers organizing it and interpreting what it means. This will lead to multiple interpretations of the Quran and multiple ways of seeking to implement the Quranic message to the realities of a community uh, or communities in a fast-changing landscape. It will take centuries to have more or less complete constructions that came to be known as quote-unquote Islam. Before discussing some of the details of this transition from Quranic discourse to Islamic discourses uh, in the next few episodes, I would like to make some very important general observations that we must take with us in this journey. Number one, Quranic discourse seems to have created a major break in the lives and beliefs of the Arabs to which it was addressed. As we saw in previous episodes, the Quran used a variety of elements from its direct environment and reshaped them in a very rich way to create a new consciousness and to present new frames of reference to the Arab society of the time. One could say that the Quran presented a frame of unity, one God, one nation, by the end of the life and career of Muhammad, an Arabian peninsula that was politically organized into various tribes, each with its sheikh or leader and with its deity or deities, in competition with each other for power, prestige, and material resources, this peninsula 
had apparently moved into a unified supra-tribe whose members were considered brothers, equals in the eyes of one transcendent God, and under the leadership of Muhammad, who played both the role of a spiritual leader in connection with the one God in the tradition of biblical prophets, and the role of a super sheikh, if you'd like, leader of a large political alliance with a renewed moral vision. Number two, as much as the break introduced by the Quran must be stressed, it is as crucial to insist that the pre-Quranic ways, the tribal ethos, tribal competition, the centrality of blood relations, social mores, remain strong underneath the cover of and in tension with what the Quranic discourse introduced into its original setting. We will see how right after Muhammad's passing, the old ways will play a big role in the intense and bloody conflicts that would plague the community and that will have an important role in shaping the future of Islamic discourses. Number three, the rapid Arab conquests of large areas of the Near East, North Africa, and Central Asia will have a huge impact on the shaping of Islamic discourses. Uh, for a brief introduction to the pre-Islamic Near East, please go back to the earlier podcast episodes on the subject. The Arab conquests brought them in direct contact with well-entrenched and sophisticated traditions. In addition, the economic prosperity that accompanied the conquests would slowly lead to the further development of existing urban centers and to the eventual creation of new important cosmopolitan cities. Cities in which Muslim scholars would define the official religious identities and the frame of social organization in interaction with powerful Muslim empires. Empires that would be built on the basis of earlier political frames, particularly within the Persian imperial legacy. Here we are far away from the sort of life and society to which the Quran originally addressed itself. Connected to all this is the slow rise of new political and economic elites and therefore of social classes, all looking for religion to fit their interests. The development of various Islamic perspectives will then also occur within particular economic structures favoring some and not others. This is particularly important because scholarship needs sponsorship to be sustained and to spread. This is still the case today. Which religious perspectives dominate has to do with much more than their merit or quote-unquote truth. Political power, economic interests, social structures, and the intellectual horizons of particular times 
have a huge impact on the process. Number four, the role of non-Arab converts in shaping the Islamic discourses after the conquests must also be stressed. This is true of the high traditions of Islamic scholarship that uh, will come to life and fruition within the larger Near Eastern environment that I mentioned earlier. But it is also true on the side of popular practice. It would take long decades, even centuries, for the populations of the conquered lands to become Muslims and for Islam to become the majority religion. But even when conversion occurred, the converts kept layers of the previous religious beliefs and these beliefs became mixed with the teachings of orthodox uh, Muslim scholars creating a variety of popular Muslim practice. Let's keep this basic picture in mind as a background and we will move forward and discuss in more details some aspects of the development of Islamic discourses in the upcoming episodes. In conclusion, I would like to reiterate the distinction between Quranic discourse as prophetic teachings accepted by the believers as divine revelation received between the year 610 and the year 632 and between Islamic discourses as attempts by the believers in the decades and centuries after Muhammad to make sense of their world in interaction with the central text of the Mus'haf, the Quranic corpus, as guide. This is why in the previous episodes I tried to speak about the contents of the Quran without alluding to what later Islamic tradition added to the picture. And this is no easy task. And I likely failed to take the later discourses completely out of the picture. But attempting to do so is a must, in my opinion, if we are to take history seriously. The Islamic discourses will come to be very rich, sophisticated, and varied, competing interpretative communities, different methods, different disciplines, and different sects would shape the Islamic discourses. And these discourses will in turn have a profound impact on how Muslims would relate to the world, to God, and to the Quran. Please join me again next time. Assalamu alaikum.